Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 92. At the beginning of October 1987, one Reki moved into the southern Angola region, replacing five Reki. And by the time the SADF top brass had decided the final course of action, a group of 30 Rekis flew by C-130 from Durban Air Force Base to Rundu. It was at Rundu where a critically important meeting had taken place on the 15th of October, and that's when Army Chief General Kat Liebenbach had arrived to attend a briefing by staff officers. They had developed two alternatives about what to do next. Either prevent Fapla from withdrawing over the Chambinga River towards Quito Quanavali until the SADF reinforcements showed up in early November and destroyed them. Not much chance of that succeeding. The South Africans were too thin on the ground. Option two was really an extension of this first option. The first part of the plan was the same, to trap Fapla, but then to send Forsai and the tank squadron west of the Quito River and to take the town of Quito Quanavali from the northwest. Outflank Fapla's brigades, in other words, and hit their rear. The SADF battle group would then advance north and destroy the Fapla brigades based east of Quito Quanavali, the 16th, 59th, 21st and 25th. Liebenbach preferred option two, and that's why the Rekis were flying in from Durban. These experienced operators were in for a bit of a shock. Usually they would be dropped way behind enemy lines in small groups and silently go about their business. Then they'd be extracted once the reconnaissance was complete, and most of the time Fapla or Swapo had no idea they'd been there at all. This time the Rikis were based close to a very noisy group of 61 mech tiffies or engineers who clanged and hammered at night, talked loudly, smoked, without an apparent care in the world. This was something of an operational shift for one Reki. Major Franz van Dijk was the ops commander for the Rikis, and along with Major Doibi Kutsia, his two IC, they landed at Rundu and met up with Brigadier Fido Smith from 2-0 Brigade. Warrant Officer Bruce Lang and Warrant Officer Rosie Dalla Priya set up a TAC HQ at a place they called Fort Foot. The Reiki teams and their signaller Sergeant Abel Erasmus were then briefed at the forward HQ, and the comms were tested. Rations, ammo, equipment was packed with Van Dijk taking command of the forward tactical or TAC command HQ and could see at the rear. Then the Ricky teams flew out at night in four Pumas to 2-0 Brigades HQ southeast of Quito Quanavali, a two-hour flight into Angola. When the Pumas landed, the Rekis immediately recognized they were involved in something very different as they jumped from the helicopters and took up their defensive positions in the dark. First they smelt the smoke from UNITA troops who dug fires into the ground. Then the sounds of battery charges being cranked for the HF radios. Typical sounds of a UNITA rebel army merged then with the newer metallic sounds of mobile warfare. When the sun rose, the Reki saw the extent of the assembly area. Rattles were covered in camouflage, logistics vehicles nearby, all in a big lager. Five Reki handed over their three Caspers to one Reki, along with the radios and other core material and ammunition. Then one Reki went over to 2-0 Brigade TAC HQ to meet Colonel Ferreira and his staff, as well as the combat group leadership from Alpha, Bravo and Charlie. This was now a full-scale conventional war, and the HQ had tables and chairs, boards with maps, intelligence officers, peering at documents and looking busy. Alexander Strachan quotes an operator in his book One Reiki, saying, My first impression was things are happening here. This is war. While all of this was going on, the Central Intelligence Agency was reportedly sending information to the SADF. This has been contested by the Americans, although investigative writer Fred Bridgeland says he has proof. 
He says the CIA had been conducting debriefing sessions with Cuban Air Force General Rafael Del Pino Diaz, who had defected to the USA. Apparently, Del Pino's advice to the SADF was to cut off the Manong-Quito-Quanavali supply road, which would bring FAPLA's advance to a grinding halt. De Pino warned against attacking Guito Quanavali directly, saying it was a tactical mistake to concentrate firepower on this point. He said the clever option was to sever Farplus supplies, then grind Guito Quanavali down. Just by the way, Hitler ignored similar advice when he was told to avoid attacking Stalingrad directly. His generals wanted to pass it by and starve the Russians inside rather than take them on. Yes, I know, hindsight, folks, is an exact science. But right now, the SADF leadership was beginning to fixate on Quito Quanavali like Adolf Hitler fixated on Stalingrad. And ensconced within Quito Quanavali were a few hundred Russian advisors, just to add a little irony to the comparison. There's an excellent book called Bush War, The Road to Quito Quanavali, edited by Gennady Shubin and Andrei Tokarev, all about Soviet soldiers' accounts of the Angolan War. I'm using these accounts in the next few podcasts because they are unfettered diary entries which offset some of the more prosaic commentary by both sides. They were excellent observers of warfare, monitoring the SADF and FAPLA as well as SWAPO. This book is full of illuminating descriptions of what went on inside FAPLA's trenches between 1987 and 1989. So on the 15th of October, some of these Russians had taken up their new positions east of Quito River alongside FAPLA's 21st Brigade, which had been so badly mauled trying to cross the Lomba River Bridge. Major Batista was group commander of the 21st Brigade, and as the Russians introduced themselves to him and familiarized themselves with the landscape, they heard planes flying past and the rumble of artillery as the SADF shelled 16th and 59th Brigades from long distance. The SADF right now was facing a few challenges. The generals knew that they had to force a military decision either at Quito Quanavali or on the road to Manong before the 15th of December, because that date marked the end of the service period of national servicemen, the conscripts. The government of South Africa was also running into financial trouble. I'll deal with that in a few minutes. The South Africans were considering bombing the airbase at Manong, where the Angolan Air Force had withdrawn its MiGs and Hines from Quito Quanavali, but the Americans warned Pretoria this would lead to Oshikati coming under direct attack. Yanni Helden has confirmed this at a media conference a couple of years later, saying both sides were well aware that if that happened, the war would escalate to a full-scale war between the Russians, the Cubans, Southwest Africans, and the South Africans. Furthermore, the Russian diaries I read are very clear that they were going to help the Cubans in particular set up air bases far in the south of Angola from where they did indeed plan to bomb northern Novumberland. No one was going to win a war if that took place, least of all Pretoria. So the SADF was vacillating. Should they launch a two-pronged assault on Quito and bomb Menong using 3-2 battalion to the east and 61 mech, which would then link up with Forsai and the tanks from the south, then capture the Lombo River crossing, march north? Only Fapla's 13th Brigade stood in the way, they thought. That was not true. There were four brigades waiting for the South Africans. The other concept, a fluid, mobile battle between the Lomba and Quito rivers, then heading northwest to do Chambinga, surrounding four enemy brigades and destroying them one by one through feint and strike, appealed to most of the SADF commanders, except for Colonel Rinas van Rensberg of the SA Medical Services. At a meeting, he pointed out that there would be hundreds of casualties, and because the Angolans controlled the skies, SADF casualties would bleed to death 
before they were Kazakhed. That comment shone a bright light of reality on the conversation going on at Rindu HQ because the loss of many more young South African men would be a political horror show for the National Party and P.W. Butter. Something else caught their attention. By now, their logistic challenges were significant. The SADF material on its way north of the Lomba River began its trip in Pretoria, then was dragged overland to Rundu via Kuruman and to Mavinga and finally the front. Pretoria to Grootfontein was 2,300 kilometres, Rundu to Mavinga 356 kilometres, the last part of the route through bush, mud, road, jungle. The road trip from Rundu to Mavinga took more than five days alone. While the SA Air Force could help, they could not provide enough strategic airlift to keep a full brigade supplied. The SAF was increased their bombing raids on Fapla's 21st and 59th Brigades on the 16th October, and the Russians on the other side of the Quito River experienced the full brunt of these bombings on the 17th. Translator Igor Zhidakin was sitting at his table in a bunker under a tree at the 21st Brigade command post at 0650 that morning when a South African mirage swooped down towards him. Our anti-aircraft troops failed to see it in time, he wrote in his diary. The aircraft hit the forward positions of the brigade's 1st Infantry Battalion, but there were no casualties. However, the fact that it had sneaked up on the brigade unnerved the Russians. So much for the bristling anti-aircraft defense system, they thought. As they all recovered, a second SAF force attack rolled in at 0815, and Fapla gunners weren't able to react in time once more. The Russians realized that the mirages were flying low along the bank of the Kunzimbia River, out of sight of the SAM-8 missile systems, then they turned 180 degrees at low altitude to the north and flew back low over the river towards the brigade. But they were determined not to be caught napping a third time and trained all their weapons northwards. That was in time to catch the third wave of four mirages at 1000 hours 10 as these swooped in to strike the area of the 21st Brigade's 3rd Battalion. Jadakin wrote that at least one Mirage was shot down by the Strela-10 anti-aircraft missile system and a second was hit by a ZU-23 anti-aircraft autocannon. The SA Air Force denied this. The brigade commander ordered a search party to head off to bring back bits of the Mirage as proof, but when the search party returned they were empty-handed. It's the nature of this war that the highest tech battles, those involving the aircraft, are the most contested. It's the same in the Falklands battle, the same right now in the Russian war in Ukraine. Taking out an enemy aircraft is a kind of boast. You have managed to defeat their most advanced and expensive bit of kit. So we'll leave the claims right there. Shadakin swears he saw two mirages hit. The SAF swears all four made it home unscathed. The first casualty in war is truth, as they say. While the long logistics route hampered the South Africans, it was the same for the enemy. The Cubans and the Russians had already warned the MPLA government in Luanda that their logistics would be stretched and that the SADF may target the supply lines as a tactic. On the 19th of October, Fapla's 21st Brigade began moving towards the 59th Brigade east of the Quito River, close to the headwaters of the Dala River, and their orders were to be ready to mount a counter-attack against the South Africans. The 21st Brigade managed to make 16 kilometres that day, although the SADF artillery and recce's picked up their movement. On the 20th, when South Africa's G5 guns found their range, most of the shells fell short of the brigade as it trundled along making another 26 kilometres. The Angolans, in turn, were having problems with their artillery. The brigade commander grappled with this all day, 
there were two main challenges. Firstly, they couldn't work out from where the South Africans were shelling. And secondly, according to Russian advisers, Fapler's 21st Brigade commander couldn't work out exactly where he was. The problem was complicated. They had to work out the shell calibers, the range of the shells, and the places where the SADF had hidden themselves, and the Angolan artillery commanders just could not agree on all of the above. So, as the Russians and Fapler settled down for the night of the 20th of October, the SADF continued shelling them, but there were no casualties. By now, one recce had moved into their position just north of Fapler's 21st Brigade, close to a wide floodplain that lay east to west and just north of the Quartier River. One recce had been broken up into six teams, each having its own area of responsibility and then provided with a specific task. There was slightly higher ground north of the Chambinga River, so this provided a better view across the Angolan flatlands westwards. But hundreds of vehicle and anti-personnel mines had been laid by Fapla as both sides settled into the final positions for the start of these battles, and these minefields posed a serious threat to the recce. Fapla had also set up machine gun nests so they could rake any area when a mine was triggered, making it doubly difficult for the South Africans. Another real worry was the recce's lay-up technique. They would lie motionless on the felt, and their own combat groups may drive over these concealed men at night. By now, the recce's had decided that the mechanized units alongside were making far too much noise and moved their tactical HQ a few kilometers forward of two Zero Brigade's busy tents. While an artillery forward observation officer was initially tasked with joining the recce's, he was later removed because the quick learning operators got the hang of doing forward fire control themselves. All the while, the Russians, the Cubans and the Angolans were moving into their defensive positions and digging in. On the 21st of October, 21 brigades sent reconnaissance groups to find the river nearby and determine exactly where they were. The rest of the brigade remained behind and then they were bombarded by a South African or Unita artillery. Russians weren't sure which. A day later, on the 22nd, and the brigade was on the move once again. By 1500 hours 30, they had reached their destination on the southern bank of the Quartier River. Just north of them were elements of one recce watching their movement. Two days later, the SADF shelling had increased, but the Fapla artillery helped by Cubans and Russians were starting to figure out where the G5s were located. At 0830 on the 23rd of October, Fapla's artillery let loose with several salvos towards the South African guns using BM-21 rockets and D-31 22mm howitzers from temporary positions. These were then quickly withdrawn and within an hour the SADF fired back. The technique used by the Angolans was to go completely quiet and to try and figure out the location of the G5s based on their sound. Not very sophisticated but quite accurate if you have an ear for that sort of thing. It was on the 23rd that the Angolan Tactical Group Commander Major Batista ordered his artillery to open fire on the SADF based near the 59th Brigade. They were almost directly south of where 21st Brigade were based, and the BM-21 systems, each launcher armed with 34 shells, let fly. There was an almost immediate response from the SADF, and the BM-21 launchers were caught in their position, finding it difficult to move away. There were some casualties. Our wretched armoured troop carrier shook and we felt very uncomfortable, Igor Zhdarkin wrote in his diary, particularly in view of the howling and whistling of the shells flying over our heads. Steadily, this war was drawing itself towards itself. By the 30th of October, Forsyth had arrived south of Mavinga, ready for battle. It was a powerful unit, 
a mechanized battalion group similar in size to 61 mech, including two mechanized infantry companies of Rattle 20s, an armored car squadron of Rattle 90s, a support company of Rattle 90s as well as Rattle 60s with Milan anti-tank missiles, and a few Rattle 81s, which was a self-propelled mortar 81mm system. The unit also called on 120mm mortar batteries, anti-aircraft troops or Astafarks, a pioneer platoon of Rattle 20s and a combat engineer troop. But by far the most important addition were the 13 Ulifan tanks, 12 plus 1 reserve, and a motorized infantry company from 3-2 battalion was added for good measure. This was the first time since the SA Army had fought in Italy in 1945 that tanks were going to support infantry in action. In command of the Ulifants was Major Andrei Retif, who was going to make a name for himself in the coming weeks, as you'll hear. This battalion group of more than 1,000 men was led by Commandant Dion Marais, who had fought in both Operation Protea and Daisy. The artillery was also joined by another G5 battery and a troop of self-propelled guns. Remember, I mentioned one broke down, but they were really still in advanced testing mode. A Valkyrie mobile rocket launcher troop joined, just in case. The tanks in particular gave the troops more confidence, while the mechanized brigade officers were even more optimistic, having been forced to fight T-54s and T-55s with Rattle 90s that were really no match on paper. The reality, however, was the South Africans only had enough conscripts and professionals to fill a single tank squadron in the field. Days turned into weeks, and Farpler had a chance to catch their breath as they faced the smattering of South Africans shelling them. The Rekis doing the monitoring, 3-2 Battalion and UNITA sniping and deploying guerrilla tactics once more. The SADF veterans of the Lomba battle earlier in October were still recovering. The enemy had been thrown off balance by the defeat of 47 Brigade and the hammering taken by the 21st. But the Angolans were quickly regaining their composure as evidenced by the Russian descriptions. It is now that we must consider something that had been eroding steadily through the last 10 years of war. South Africa's economy. Years of war had drained the country, exacerbated by the collapse in the value of exports in 1987. It's hard for some to remember, if you were around then, but the rate of inflation was 15% in the third quarter of 1987, still better than 1986 when it was 26%. However, as I record this in 2023, it's just under 7% to give listeners some idea of what was going on economically. You see, by 1985 already, South Africa was mired in crippling debt of over $24 billion, mainly owed to Swiss banks, who in 1987 were being accused of propping up the apartheid system by rolling over interest on the debt, which Pretoria could not pay. South Africa sent Gerard de Kock, the head of its central bank, to meet foreign creditors, but they were generally reluctant to extend loans. In a first step towards resolving the SA debt problem, representatives of 29 banks of all five major industrial countries had met in London to begin negotiations on rescheduling Pretoria's massive foreign debt. Within the next year, the government of P.W. Boerta was facing an internal uprising, economic headwinds, growing numbers of conscientious objectors refusing to serve in its army, and FAPLA's determination to crush UNITA. In 1986, international banks extended about 515 million US dollars in short-term loans to South Africa's state-owned corporations, mainly to its power entity, Eskom. Yes, this centrally planned anachronistic state power company was being bailed out in the mid-80s already. So by 1987, Switzerland, by all intents and purposes, had become South Africa's bank. 
The country's gold was sold in the world market by Swiss banks during apartheid, and Switzerland was the lifeline for South African exports. The apartheid government opened a financial consulate in Zurich in 1987. It was so important. It was after this that many South African companies transferred their foreign assets to Switzerland, giving the country a gateway to the rest of the world. In 1987, for example, the Rembrandt Corporation set up Compagnie Financière Richemont in Zug, Switzerland, and it's still there. All of this was going on as the tanks arrived from the south, the Ulifants, and the men were going to bleed some more. Pretoria was hemorrhaging cash. It was inside southern Angola and over its head. But this didn't stop the soldiers on the ground from fighting tooth and nail over the next few months, often turning imminent defeat into victory, as you're going to hear. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, bye-bye. Thank you.